Welcome everyone, I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana, and we're here at 318 Latino Studios for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. And we have a first today, we have two guests, we've never had two guests, we have Lieutenant Bowman and Dr. Patterson. So thank you both for being here, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you, thank you. All right, Lieutenant Bowman, you you are a lieutenant in the Shreveport Police Department. Until recently, you were a community liaison officer, or CLO, as it is often known. You once said the following, community policing isn't a unit, it's a concept. We have an opportunity to do so much in the community, and you see the positive as well as the negative. It's the best of the policing world. Let's start here today. Talk to me about community policing and why it's such an important aspect in a successful police department. Well, I think for me, you know, the very foundation of community policing has always been building relationships with the people that we serve. Um, you know, the founding father of community policing said it best, you know, the police are the community and the community are the police. Um, I think all Police officers, not just in a specialized unit, have a responsibility and the ability to establish partnerships, you know, through positive interactions to improve the quality of life for the community and to increase public safety. Now, positive interactions um, take that additional time. You know, it's, it's one thing to just respond when somebody's having a problem. But it's taking the opportunity maybe the next day to go back and, and have that cup of coffee with somebody, to check on somebody. It's going above and beyond just those regular calls for service to really encourage that trust building in the community. Because I don't think we can solve problems by just responding to calls. We really have to establish trust within the community to problem solve. Love that. And Dr. Patterson, you serve as the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at LSU Health Shreveport. I do. I'd like to direct my next couple of questions to you. Uh, my first question is simply, what defines a crisis? Well, in, in terms of, for many, many years, I practiced emergency psychiatry, and that is psychiatry in the emergency room. Um, it's a, it's a different flavor of psychiatry. You know, I've been asked, well, do you have a couch in the ER? No, I don't, I don't really have a couch. It's, um, we, we take care of patients that show up suicidal, gravely disabled by psychosis or drugs, or um, hallucinating from a mental disorder that has psychosis as a component, or all of the above. And, it, and it's often a combination of things. It's... Um, it's every, every patient is different. It's one of my favorite teaching points that you have people that come from all walks of life, but many in Shreveport are from the lower socioeconomic class. And they've had very rough lives. And so in, in many ways for them, the ER is a, uh, it's a safe place. So they come in and get help. So a, a psych, psychiatric crisis is... By, by legal definition, it's someone who's suicidal, homicidal, or gravely disabled. Um, and the most common is gravely disabled or suicidal. Those, those are by far the most common. 
And they are brought in, in many cases, by the police uh, and through legal means, you know, because the police have a, a choice. If someone is obviously in need of assistance, they get brought to the emergency room. So our emergency crisis services here in town have been very busy over the past few decades. Perfect. And my next question for you is, is, is what does Shreveport's current crisis system look like? Well, that crisis system has been the police bringing people to our emergency room at Oshner LSU for the last few decades. But just in the past couple of years, we have started working on a crisis response system that looks really good. Many cities across America and across the, the world have other more developed mechanisms in place to take care of patients that are having mental health crisis. Um, we are just getting started on that. So having what is called co-responder teams, patients um, get met in the community, not by the police, but by mental health care providers, not doctors usually. It's um, the, the most common type of individual that goes to help other patients is what's called a peer specialist. These are people who've been there, done that, got the t-shirt and can help others make it through the times that they're in. And so the peer specialist and maybe nurses, maybe medical technicians, um, there, there's all different types of co-responder teams, but it's meeting patients in the community and getting them the help they need there so that they don't have to get brought to the emergency room. Or the, the other alternative for the police is to, if they get really sick and do something that's against the law, oftentimes they get violent. And so they'll get arrested and taken to jail. Um, getting them and calming them down and getting them the care they need before they do something that gets them in trouble with the law. So our crisis response system is, it's just in like the baby steps. It's just getting started. My favorite place to compare it to is a city who's been doing this for over two decades, and they have a well-oiled machine, and that's what we're trying to get to. And what city is that? Just that's Tucson, Arizona. So it's a, a place that has all the, all the, pretty much all the, all the things in place that they need to to for the the patients that need it, and we're just getting started. We don't. We're just getting started this year putting those pieces in place. And this is going to make, I mean, aside from many things it's going to do for our community, it's going to make, it's going to make, it's going to help with public safety, correct? Because yes. Because it's going to. Yeah. Well, right now our police officers are understaffed and overworked and a lot of their work is dealing with patients and they're police officers. So they, you know, they, they have a lot of different duties, but it would be great if we could take care of our patients in the community through healthcare providers instead of police officers. For one, it's better for the patient because not everyone who sees a, a uniformed police officer feels safe. I do. I love the police. I would love to, but sometimes, especially with my, what I call my people, some of them have had trouble with the law before and some of them might be on probation or parole or actually have charges. So they're not necessarily going to be very happy if the police show up. If they, if a care provider shows up, they would be much likely, much more likely to 
stay calm and stay out of trouble and get the help they need. And I know we're still trying to figure this out because I've participated in some meetings, but can, is there anything you can tell the public about how potentially this would work? Meaning, like, how, do, how, how is there a situation where maybe um, the police doesn't respond and someone that is more appropriate responds? Mm -hmm. like, how would that possibly occur? Well, there's a, a lot of different ways, and that, that's one of the, the approaches that Tucson has taken. They call it no wrong door. And so wherever the person calls, wherever they show up, they get directed to the resources that they need. Um, and so, I mean, a good example would be someone who gets brought into the emergency room by the police. If they have a co-responder team respond to that person and get them taken to there, the, there's going to be an actual brick-and-mortar building where patients can go for observation, for, for care, for what, what can I do to help you? You know, there's going to be people there that will help them. And they're going to be co-responder teams that go out, what, what do you need? What can we do to help you? Um, that will decrease the workload on the police officers because they don't have to stay. They may not even have to go depending on how this works out. And they certainly don't have to bring them to the emergency room. They can get them the care they need by the care providers right there. Um, that's to get started. Once we get further down the road, once they develop relationships, like you were talking earlier about, you know who the people are that need help. They can go check on them, say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. How's it going? What do you need to stay? You know, we don't have to call, right? So that relationship building is really important because you can – Develop a list of people that you know they're going to be in trouble if you don't go check on them, and go check on them. So, the um, those co-responder teams are going to be pretty important. And people out there understand, for the most part, that we we have a shortage of police officers. Jails are overcrowded. What a lot of people don't know, though, I think this is correct, is that we don't have a lot of room in the emergency rooms either, right? And I don't know if you're understaffed. I don't know if that's the correct terminology, but I feel like I've heard in the last few months that um, you, you don't have a lot of room there. Is that is that accurate? That's true. Um, we, we don't have a lot of room. And there is um, the, the best way of saying it is, is that when you walk into an emergency room, you have a you, you get assigned a, a number you know if if you have chest pain if you have severe medical issues you're going to get bumped to the top we're a level one trauma center so those are at the top of the list um, psychiatry is not that far down the list because people that are suicidal are at a great risk of dying and so they get put pretty high on the list um, we only have a few beds though and so we have to um, develop and, and provide a lot of resources to get those patients taken care of. So there, there are not a lot of beds. There's, in fact, there's eight. Um, we used to have more, but now that we have a hospital that's bigger and we can transition patients out quicker, it's down to eight. Okay, thank you. And I've read that nearly 50% of 911 calls received by Shreveport Police are mental health related. Um, how is this report, police, Lieutenant Bowman, from your perspective, better addressing the growing mental health needs of our community? I think in 2020 is when we really started focusing on the crisis intervention training, and that is a 
<clears throat> it's a 40-hour class designed to teach first responders a little more about uh, mental health diagnosis, um, substance use disorders, and intellectual um, and developmental disabilities. Uh, and, and really the goal of that was to make sure that those crisis calls that we do get, that we have better a better ability to to not have those interactions go bad. And I think it's just having a better understanding. Um, Let me interrupt one second. I, you know, as I, because I'm very much novice in this, but one thing that's helped me kind of wrap my head around it is it, the CIT, I think it's, it, it is, is, it's, a, it's called CIT training. It's not that different, <clears throat> or there's some similarities between it and ACES training. We've talked a lot on this podcast about ACES and trauma training and, and, and training as many of our teachers and many of our um, uh, school staff as we possibly can so that they better recognize what's going on with the students that they oversee. In many ways, that's what's happening with the CIT training um, with the police and our law enforcement. Would you say that's a, a, a fair? Um, oh, definitely. And we there's a certain segment of that training that we do teach ACEs, and mm -hmm. we have all the first responders actually take that ACE test. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the overwhelming majority have really high ACE scores, which goes to show you just how compassionate they are about trying to help other people, basically, from the struggles that, you know, we've had as children. It, it, it's really the reason why I went into law enforcement. So I'm very mm -hmm. familiar with the struggles with... Um, anxiety and depression. So when I get crisis calls like that, it's, they're pretty important to me because, you know, I have to imagine myself what that looks like on my worst day to pick up the phone and to call 911 to get a uniformed police officer with a gun coming out to a call when I'm at my lowest, you know, and that, that says a lot, you know, the, I think trying to navigate yeah. The, the the mental health care system as it is is difficult at best when you're in a good place trying to find a counselor or a psychiatrist and, and navigating those appointments and your health care system. Imagine what that must be like when somebody's actually in crisis and the most difficult things just to walk down your driveway and go to the mailbox is difficult, you know, and you're suicidal or depressed. It just... It's a very broken, fragmented system that we have, and we can do a lot better. We can definitely and, do and, a lot better. And we're working on that with this crisis response system. The the police traditionally have been trained to give people commands, and they should do what the police say. My people, my patients, what I call them, they they often can't because they they're in, <clears throat> they've lost touch with reality, and so. The police officer's training takes over and that person may get arrested because they didn't do what the police said. If they understand that this person is not doing what they want, not what the police wants, because they don't have the ability to do because they're psychotic or delirious or just lost touch with reality or whatever, then they can use that training and say, look, you need some help. We're going to get you to the hospital instead of arresting them and taking them to jail. And that uh, our, our jails are definitely overcrowded. Our emergency rooms are overwhelmed. Our police are overwhelmed. And so we need a better crisis response system. It's, a, it's been a long time coming. And I, that, that's, not just a, that's not just a Louisiana thing or a Shreveport thing. That's a nationwide thing. 
Many places have done it, like Tucson, but others are just starting, like us. So we're getting started on it. Well, I do think that our officers, when they go to the CIT program the last couple of days, it's a, there's a real heavy emphasis on pretty difficult role-playing scenarios with people who are in crisis. So we we do try to teach them a skill set on, on active listening skills and building communication skills so that we take a little bit more time when somebody's in crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is is learning how to listen. You know, when, when officers get out on the scene, we're just like Dr. Patterson said, we're very used to giving verbal commands to try to get people to do what we need to do quickly. You know, ours is about scene safety. But I think we have to take a step back when we have crisis calls like that and really hear people. You know, give them a voice. You know, be neutral and and be respectful and really try to understand the perspective that they're coming from so that we can build that trust and really kind of help connect them to the correct service that they might need or the correct response. Cause it's not always us, but you know, I think building those resources out is going to give us the ability to connect them to the care that they need. And it might not always mean being taken to an emergency room in handcuffs. You know, it might mean having peer support specialists come out there or dropping them off, you know, to a different facility with less restrictive care. Love it. And I, I believe that the Tommy McLaughlin case helped lead to an increased focus on mental health locally. Um, Either one of you, would you mind talking a little about that case and what it showed the Shreveport Police Department it needed to do differently? You know, I think all of that happened around 2020 with um, George Floyd and the pandemic, and there was just a real heavy emphasis on maybe what law enforcement agencies needed to focus better on as far as training. You know, there was a whole kind of national narrative of defunding the police. And, you know, there, this was a great opportunity. I think any time that there's an in-custody death like that, all agencies have to look internally to see what training that would be more beneficial. And, it, you know, we're, we're not clinicians, but we are public servants. And if that means that we have to understand mental health you know, a little bit better than and I think that's, you know, what our goal is to do. Um, I think, you know, looking at the Tommy McGothan case, there were several calls for service prior to the one that resulted in his death. And I, I think therein lies where we, we could have had better training and a better understanding of mental health. There There are some discretionary times on calls for service that it's not obvious that a person is a threat to themselves or a threat to somebody else, but it's that area, that gray area of being gravely disabled, you know, when somebody's off their medication, you know, that those are trickier situations for law enforcement officers to determine what level of care that they need. And it's mm-hmm. an opportunity that we can, you know, maybe get families additional information about, you know, mental health diagnosis because they're, they're reaching out you know, with a crisis for a family member. And we don't often know exactly what the best recourse is for that. So I think, you know, having these coalitions and having this type of training is going to make us, you know, all around better as a city trying to navigate, you know, crisis care. I think it's important to realize, too, that our society has evolved. We are not the same people that we were 
just 10 years ago, and certainly not 50 years ago. Um, in, in terms of emergency psychiatry, what I've done for a living, uh, in 1995, our emergency room only saw about two or three cases a day. We're, we're seeing about 15 to 20 a day now. Now, why is that? The population of Shreveport has actually gone down by 2%. It has to do with the fact that our people have changed. Not necessarily for the best. I mean, a lot of things about our society have improved, but why is it that our mental health is worse? And I really think that we need to look at what's going on in our society that is driving that. Um, and, and there are a lot of things, in my opinion. It, it's, not, it's not a single factor. It's a lot of different factors. Um, and, and that's one of my areas of interest that I love looking at and, and trying to you know, get to the bottom of. Well, you, not, you, you can go as deeply as you want, but would you share a few of those contributors or what sure. you feel are a few of those contributors, yeah, we just out of curiosity? actually published on it before we looked at the demographics and, and the criteria and the, the characteristics of the patients that have been coming into our emergency room. Um, universally high ACEs scores, okay? Broken families, broken homes, broken educations, the vast majority of them have been the victims of abuse, um, don't have a job, don't, haven't finished their education. But I'd say the, the underlying, I'm not, I'm, I hesitate to use the word causal, it's probably accurate, but I haven't proven this, is that um, they come from a family where they, didn't, they were either abused or didn't feel loved or it, the family was broken. Now, it's, it's easy to, to point at that, but... You know, my parents were divorced. My, I have a stepbrother and stepsister. Everyone these days comes from a blended family. Okay, that's very common. It's the degree of pathology. It's the degree of abuse. And more importantly, especially from an ACEs, an adverse childhood experiences perspective, it's the absence of love and support, nurture and resilience. So... You can go through a lot if you've got somebody there that loves you and gets you through it. Um, but if you go through a lot and then you don't have anybody there to give you that love and support, you wind up in my emergency room. So that's what we see a lot of. And speaking about mental health, former police chief, former Shreveport police chief Ben Raymond once said, so we're going to, so we're going to kind of work in conjunction with mental health experts so that we have better encounters with citizens, less violent encounters with citizens, and overall just provide better service. Take me through, and I know we've talked a little bit about this, either one of you, just take me through how you would respond to a call. I guess this would be for you, Lieutenant. Take me through how you would respond to a call as an officer before this increased focus on mental health and how your approach might look different today? Well, I think, you know, and I've been on 28 years, so when I first got on, there was no way to distinguish a behavioral health call. So that call might have come in as a suspicious activity, as a disorderly person, or a welfare concern. I think now that we have an established signal specifically for crisis intervention calls, it affords that officer time 
from the initial call to getting out there on scene, because 75% of our agency has already been trained in crisis intervention. So I think it gives the individual a little bit of time to kind of get that in their mind that this call might take a little bit more time. Our supervisors are more understanding that it takes time to build that rapport if you're going to police empathetically. You know, it just, it it takes time to kind of get on their level and, and have a better understanding of what that crisis might be because, you know, a crisis is self-defined. You know, what is a crisis to me might not be for somebody else. Maybe they couldn't pay their bill and, and, and things got really bad for them. So I think it's important for us to go in with a very neutral mindset without, you know. Yeah. The, uh, it, you know, you mentioned a number earlier that about, you know, it's our expectation or, or belief that about 50% of the calls that come into 911 are mental health related. It's important to say that that's probably close to true, but they don't get called mental health related until the police get there. They get called disturbances. They get called, uh, um, you know, wealth, welfare concerns. They, they get called all kinds of different things because we don't know how much mental health is involved. When you look at the actual cases, they tie right back to mental health concerns, whether that's substance abuse, whether that's childhood abuse, uh, domestic violence, uh, all kinds of different things are tied back to what's going on in that person's life because they're depressed, because they're anxious, because they have impulse control or aggression issues, because they're intoxicated, because they have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. All of these things, you know, you, you get a call for a, a, an assault. Someone hits somebody because they think they're out to get them because they're hearing voices. Those are the kind of things that when you look at them, a lot of this is related to mental health. So if you can recognize that, if you can see where it is mental health, then you can get them the help that they need. Um, sometimes they're going to get brought to the emergency room, even if we, are, we have these co-responder teams. That's going to happen. But... Quite a few of them, if we can get to them before they need that, we can decrease the workload on police, decrease the workload on our ERs, and keep them from getting into crisis. Um, in, in terms of an example, the co-responder teams haven't happened yet, but um, we are predicting that will be, I think, in January? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. So we'll see how that works. And Dr. Patterson, what are best practices for transforming our current behavioral health crisis care? I mean, maybe you've already covered that, but above and beyond what you've already shared. Sure. So that's a wonderful question. It's a difficult question to answer because I can answer it in different levels. Um, I want to answer that in the, in the sort of the philosophical 30,000-foot realm. Um, the way we practice medicine today is broken when it comes to psychiatry. And it's important to look at that from a historical perspective. Um, 30 years ago, insurance didn't pay for mental health. We didn't have mental health parity. Mental health parity has not been in place that long. And even when we got mental health parity, it took years for it to actually really be on the same level as 
you go into the ER to get treated for, or go into see your primary care doc for um, a URI or a you know glaucoma or something like that, your insurance would pay for it. You went to be treated for depression, nope. Now it does. But it only recently just started paying for something that is equally as important, but much more difficult to wrap your mind around, and that's substance use disorders. Uh, you go to see your doctor and say, Doc, I need to, I've got to quit drinking. I, I need help. Insurance didn't pay for it until really only a few years ago. And so now it's finally paying for the treatment of substance use disorders. So these types of things are now available to be paid for. But from a philosophical perspective, it's still not working right. Um, I've, I've, I'll give you a good example. I've got a patient right now who's in the hospital because he's non-compliant on his meds. He stops taking his meds. He gets depressed and suicidal. Um, he, he stops taking his medications because he can't afford the copay. So there's, there's our, our society, you know, it, it's working pretty good, but we, we've got room to grow there. So a good crisis response system would have a way of dealing with those kind of things. And we're, again, we're just getting started. We're, 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 trying, to, we're trying to build the resources to put out fires. And what we need to do is get past that to the point where we can actually, you know, build the fire breaks. And we're not even close to that yet. And Lieutenant Bowman, uh, if you could, just because you you have um, such institutional knowledge, um, talk a little bit, if you could, about what has changed and is more challenging today than it was when you first began working with SPD. I think right now it's definitely going to be the workforce shortage. You know, many officers are having to wear different hats and take on additional responsibilities, and that includes... Uh, many more shifts, you know, it's just chronic stress and a lot more exposure to traumatic scenes. And I think long-term that really takes a toll on officers. So I think it's important that we start to kind of shift, you know, our, our training toward officer wellness and look at better self-care. You know, these, these problems are probably not going to change anytime soon. I don't expect, you know, there to be a hundred officers who are going to sign up next year, but, you know, we're going to have to figure out strategies and ways to, to really address, you know, officer wellness. And I think we're just starting those conversations. So I'm encouraged going forward that, you know, we're going to have more things available for, for officers to address their mental health needs as well. When I was in training in Texas, we actually had, and I think they did away with this program, but at the time, it was a pretty good program. They had mental health deputies, deputies that were in, in the counties that were specially trained to deal with mental health crises. Um, I think that's a great idea. They didn't necessarily wear full uniforms because, again, that can sometimes be upsetting to certain patients. So... You know, that kind of interface, the, the interface between the law enforcement officer and mental health, it's a very important place for us to go, and that's why we're doing these co-responder teams. That it's important to realize, though, that that's only one component of many of the, the statewide crisis response 
uh, services that we're going to be offering. Those others are, that, like I said, a brick-and-mortar place for patients to go and follow-up care. In other words, when someone gets taken care of by a team, you need to follow up on them. Did you get the care that you need? What's going on? We want to keep you from calling again. What can we do to help you? And my last question, but I will come back to both of you and just see if there are other things you want to discuss or share before we end. But my last question for you, Lieutenant Bowman, is just what's better today from your perspective um, than, than it was when you first started? That's such a challenging question, but, you know, I think it's, it's really that overall reduction in the stigma associated with, with mental health, mm -hmm. you know. When I first got on, especially being a female in a very male-dominated profession, you certainly could not talk about your mental health. It was just simply a sign of weakness, you know, and I think post-COVID and such a heavy emphasis nationally on mental wellness and resiliency, I, I think it's we're starting to see that shift within our young officers that they're a whole lot more willing to talk about their, you know, their mental health. We may not have all the resources for them and vetted clinicians that deal with PTSD, but it's a, it's a starting conversation that, that I didn't have whenever I first got on. So I think my goal is to, you know, keep pushing this narrative forward and, and, and leave it better than, than when I had it. And I think, you know, resiliency within law enforcement is, is, it's a great challenge and it's, it's one we're, we're going to keep pushing because, you know, we're, we have to have police officers out there doing that, that job. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think y'all are both doing such important work. Is there anything else that you feel I've glanced over or that we should mention? We, um, the, the one thing I wanted to touch on is that this is part of a, what's called a sequential intercept model. That is a model built by a federal group called SAMHSA. And we're on, there's I think six or seven steps in that. And we're on step zero. <laughs> so oh, we're just getting started. Step zero and step one. Um, and it involves the legal system, the forensics, the um, not just diversion from prison, but getting people that have been in prison and getting them reintegrated into society so that they don't, the recidivism rate goes down instead of up. Um, if you look at the numbers, Louisiana is number one in the United States. Well, United States is number one in the world in terms of incarceration. And Caddo Correctional Center, I believe, is either number one or number two in the, uh, in the state in terms of incarceration rate. So it's keeping us safe, but many of those patients, many of those folks in there are patients. So we need to get a mental health too. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you both. Mm -hmm.